When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Good evening. It is, of course, one of the oldest jokes in the business, and it seems almost pointless to repeat it. However, for the benefit of the two listeners who haven't heard it before, the time is Christmas Eve, seen at a department store. Two characters. Christmas shopper, Christmas shopper's friend. Dialogue. Christmas shopper, at wit's end. What'll I buy for Uncle Peter? Friend, tentatively. A book, perhaps? Christmas shopper. But sure he has a book. And do you know, a friend and colleague swears she heard a very similar bit of dialogue last Christmas at a certain shop, not a hundred miles, as they say, from these studios. However, the fact that Uncle Peter, or you, or I, may have a book already, is, I hope, not going to stop us buying each other another this Christmas, and even maybe another one still next year. One thing certain is there'll be always plenty to go around. Of making many books, as the man said, there is no end. About how many are made in a year in these islands? I asked one of our Irish publishers, Michael Gill. Well, the official figure is for this year will be somewhere in the region of 25,000, which is a great number of books, probably far too many, I think. But 25,000 it will be. And how many are made in Ireland? Well, uh, it's difficult to say for this year, because, of course, the year has not ended, but uh, to go by last year's figures, there will be approximately 450 books published in Ireland this year. And how many publishers are involved? An astonishing figure, this. 129 publishers were active during the year of 1967. And where do they all keep themselves? Well, of course, this is... Uh, it's, I think, fair to say that of these 129 publishers, uh, there were very few of them who published more than 10 books. You see, a person qualifies to be a publisher once he has published one book. Of these 129, there could be many who produced um, catalogues. Uh, I noticed auctioneers, for example, among the official list who produced catalogues. But I think it's fair to say that there are only about 10 Irish publishers who are seriously involved in publishing as a full-time profession. Now, publishing in Ireland has had, in the past, let's face it, a rather bad name among authors and among writers. A bad name, I hasten to add, not for crimes of commission, but for crimes of omission. Is this bad name justified? First of all, I would, would admit readily to the bad reputation. Uh, secondly, I think it has been justified. Thirdly, I think amends are now being made. Now, why has it been why has this occurred? Well, first of all, I think we have to see that uh, publishing in Ireland in the English language uh, was and is to a great extent still a regional activity. Publishers have tended to congregate throughout the world in the main cities of the, shall I call them the main language areas. Thus, you find Paris is a centre of publishing, but Bordeaux is not. You find that London is a centre of publishing, but Birmingham is not. You find that New York is a centre of publishing, but Kansas City is not. Now, there are exceptions, of course, in the case of Holland and Germany, but these are uh, exceptions simply because there's a good deal of regional publishing done in these places. Now, with regard to Dublin, let's face it uh, that Dublin, as far as the English language is concerned, and English language publishing is concerned, is in a regional situation. Now, I said that amends are being made. I think the amends are being made 
through, first of all, uh, English publishers being aware, coming, becoming aware of the great tradition of writing that, um, uh, that is here in, in Ireland. Secondly, several Irish firms have formed uh, links with the large English publishers, and this is a development which I would like to see growing. It has begun, and I'd like to see it growing over the next few years. Uh, if this happens, uh, I think you will see that Irish writers will be published in Dublin simultaneously with publication in London and New York, as is happening uh, now in some cases. Look, let's face it, Sean. Uh, there are, there's a very small population in Ireland. It's only a tiny part of the English-speaking population of the whole world. Uh, therefore, books published in Dublin have to be merchandised outside Ireland. They have to be sold outside Ireland. And the Dublin publisher, acting independently, stands very little chance of breaking into the markets, and I use this commercial term, breaking into the markets, in a place like Birmingham or a place like Kansas City, that I mentioned earlier. This has to be done locally through using local agents or local publishers who know the ropes on the local scene. Is there not, though, the danger, even if the economic end of it is uh, kept fairly clean and fairly straight, and even if you have editorial control, uh, does it not encourage the Irish writer to think of the foreign market rather than of the Irish market? There's a question of integrity here. There's a question of integrity on the part of the author uh, who I think has to ask himself the question, why is he writing? Is he writing to make money or is he writing for other reasons? There's integrity too on the part of the publisher. You see, uh, bestsellers are very few and far between. The publisher makes his money, money which will subsidize perhaps a most notable work of creative fiction from run-of-the-mill material which perhaps never gets a review or very few reviews, which never appears in the literary columns of the, uh, the great English Sunday newspapers or indeed with the Irish newspapers. And uh, as I say, there is this question of integrity. Yes, uh, I think it was Dr. Johnson who said that nobody but a fool ever wrote that didn't write for money. And I don't see that one can completely separate uh, what a man is writing for. He's writing for money. Of course he's writing for money. He's writing also for other reasons, and they're all bound up together. Uh, a writer is a writer, and a writer lives by writing. And we're not having writers talking on this program. It's not that kind of program. But a couple of weeks ago, this sort of question came up when we were talking about uh, writing for the theatre. And I think it was Brian Friel who said that it's impossible for a man uh, to write for any but his own people in the first instance. And one can see this, of course, in the case of the, of the stage. Is it quite as true in the case of between-cover writing? I think it is. I think I want to go back to, to a question that you asked earlier about the Irish author. Is there a danger of his writing for the great international market? Of course there is the danger. And of course we must build up in Ireland what I might call uh, indigenous writing. This must be done, and Irish publishers must give an opportunity to local authors to write within the local context and to write, if you like, within the local idiom. And if they find an international market, the best of luck to them, but it should be seen as an extra bonus. Some of us, of course, might say that this is uh, that what we're talking about now is an argument uh, against uh, there being a separate Irish school of writing in the English language and the genuine Irish writing can only be in the Irish language. Um, it's a separate question. And of course I would dispute it. I would dispute it. I mean writers like Frank O'Connor, Sean O'Fuelon, a younger generation of men like uh, Brendan Kennelly for example, poets like Seamus Heaney, Michael Longley, Thomas Kinsler, John Montague, for heaven's sake these men are as Irish as they come. Now don't get me wrong, this is not to deny that uh, uh, writing in Irish is not important. I believe it is extremely important. But there are some problems here that the publisher faces. There is, unfortunately, the relatively small readership. But the work being done by Unclubliar, for example, is extremely important here. Uh, there is the question of grants being made available for publication in Irish, and this is admirable. Uh, there is, of course, the whole question of the provision 
uh, adequate provision of textbooks in Irish, that is another question altogether and a very complicated one. Perhaps we shouldn't go into it now. No, I, I think not at this stage. But the relationship between the publisher and the author, whether he be writing in Irish or English, is a particularly delicate and special one. I'd say it's delicate, yes, it's special, yes. It's also an extremely intimate one. It should by right be a very creative relationship because I would say that the vast majority of books published today uh, result uh, primarily because of the cooperation between two people. Between the author who has the seed of an idea, the germ of an idea, and then the editor, in the publisher's editor, who gets to work with them and eventually shapes this idea into a book. Now, this even happens with uh, creative work like a novel. Uh, when uh, an experienced editor can work with a novelist, particularly a young novelist, it can be a marvelous relationship and a very great experience for both novelist, I think, and certainly for the editor. Of course, the whole publication thing is a cooperative thing, not alone author and, uh, and publisher, but publisher and printer, printer and, you know, publisher and bookseller the whole, all the way through. There are a vast number of people involved from the technical staff, and I don't mean to denigrate them when I say from the technical staff and the printer, uh, in, the, in the printer there, of course, vital, from them right up to the editor who may not know one end of a printing machine from another. Uh, it's all part of a cooperative team. Now, um, incidentally, since you've mentioned this, the standards of Irish book production, uh, how do you feel they stand at present? Again, there have been criticisms here. Uh, it's very hard to generalise. Uh, there are some extremely good standards observed in Ireland. There are also some extremely shoddy standards to be observed. By and large, I would say that the standard of Irish book production is improving and is uh, this improvement is quite discernible over recent years and in in comparison with work done in other countries well i think we have a long way to go before we catch up with the dutch or the germans for example where the visual sense is very much more developed than it is here in matters of design etc now we may talk all night about uh, creative relationships and about high standards and all that uh, behind it all there lurks the horrible economic problem and to me the economics of publishing has, have always been as baffling as the economics of transport and you can't get anything more baffling than that. Well of course any man who goes into publishing uh, who thinks he's going to make a vast profit and, and die a wealthy man is a fool. This has been said many times and my own personal view is and I know it's a view that's shared by many other publishers in different parts of the world as well is that I am not in publishing to make a profit but at the end of the year, I have to make a profit if I want to stay in publishing. And as I said earlier, there is the question of a whole list, a whole publisher's list, each title interacting one against the other, so that you just hope for the best that you're going to break even at the end of the year, and perhaps will have a little money in the kitty to back some other worthwhile projects in the next year. But the economics of publishing is very complicated. Many people are mystified by it. People, practically everybody outside publishing is mystified by it. Many publishers are mystified. Some of us would say that it's the publishers who do the mystifying. This is possibly the case, of course. Um, this is, of course, also, as I say, many publishers are mystified themselves. But there is, uh, a lot of people sometimes ask, I get many letters every month, uh, perhaps 30 or 40 letters a year from people saying, I have a book, how much will you charge me to publish it? Well, of course, this doesn't arise at all. A publisher usually accepts a book and it's his risk to issue it. He pays the printer's bills, he pays the author a royalty, he pays for the advertisements, he has all his general overheads, he pays for the editing. It's his risk entirely. And I think that this is the proper and right way to work. And how much does it cost to bring out a book? Now, there's a question. <laughs> Very difficult to get an average, but I would say that for the first novel of, say, 250 pages, printing 3,000 copies, uh, £1,700, £2,000 would disappear before you know where you are. And does this represent a fairly steep increase in recent years? Because, you know, where, from where I sit, from any, anybody who buys the odd book sets, uh, there's certainly been a very steep increase in book prices. Of course it represents an increase, and the reason for this is that printing costs have increased. But then, you see, all commodities have become more expensive, from drink to cigarettes 
to the cost of living generally. And if authors have to be paid proper royalties, if printers have to be paid, well then, of course, this has to be reflected in the actual price of the book in the bookshop shelves. Of course, there are more ways of acquiring a book than by putting down good money for it across a bookshop counter. There is stealing, for instance, and there is borrowing. Sometimes these two are difficult to distinguish. But there is a kind of borrowing which is legitimate and valuable. Indeed, were it not for our library service, I doubt if we'd be even half as literate as we are. Dermot Foley, who is director of Anchorle Laurlana, the Library Council, would not claim that the system as it stands reflects our reading habits as a whole. Because, as he says, while here and there we have something approaching inadequate service, housed in adequate and attractive buildings, this is not yet true of the country as a whole. Although I know indeed how very well they are working on it. Still, he would agree that the use of the service does reflect to some extent what he would call an explosion in reading in Ireland over the last few years, both in the number of books read and the kind of books read. On the first point, I asked him how many books would be in circulation uh, round the country, say, in a given year. It would be very difficult to say that because books are all the time on the move in libraries. And in county libraries, a lot of books may be on the road going from one library, having been taken from another one. But could I come at it this way uh, and say that uh, last year there was something like uh, 12 or 13 million books issued from the county and municipal libraries. Now, that's a very uh, imposing figure. Um, it may mean nothing in the context that we're talking about, uh, but it's a very considerable rise over some years before. And uh, if, if, may I take the example, for instance, of Cork City Library, which uh, today is issuing from the Grand Parade something like 4,000 books per day. That means that the staff in the council is handling 8,000 the book you bring back and the book you take out represents two books. Now, that's an enormous concourse of people going into one library. Then in the provincial areas, small towns, Ennis, uh, Clonus, you'll find something like a third and even a fourth of the population registered as readers in the libraries. Now, uh, an interesting thing about this is that more and more children are coming into the libraries. And uh, this, I think, is, uh, in fact, I'm sure of this, it's not alone because the libraries are able to do more for them now. They are indeed. But they have been urged to do this uh, through their teachers, on the one hand, and beyond the teachers, by the Department of Education, which at long last, I'm glad to say, is recognizing the library as a most important tool in education and has been putting in libraries into each rural national school. Little collections of books which are as important and are as integral to education as is the map or the blackboard. And the teachers, uh, encouraged by the inspectors and by the department, are getting the children to use these books in schools themselves. That is to say, if they want to, uh, if they say, write me a page for, uh, on shelves, that the children can go down to the little encyclopedia or books and work out a little article for themselves. You see, the, the interesting thing about this is not the facts or the essay they will produce, but the exercise of finding out this for themselves, which replaces the old business of our previous days where the teacher read out a little composition of a page and went down and said, give me that in your own words. And, of course, knowing how and where to find out. Yes. Tell me, um, does this interest in the schools, does this uh, then reflect itself in the use by young people of the libraries? Oh, yes, indeed it does. Uh, in the work of um, modernising the libraries and building libraries, with which the Library Council on Hoyle Laurelana is concerned, I am the chief officer of that council and I'm concerned with it practically in the field throughout the country, where we're building new libraries, we're making a large department for children. And in some places, again, as in Clonus Town, a new library which was opened there a couple of years ago, there's a small corner for tots 
where parents coming in with a three or four-year-old child or the eldest child coming in uh, with his youngest brother or sister puts this little tot in the corner, sits, he sits on the floor, gets out his little picture book to read while the children go to their own area. There is also an area then for older children, we're aiming to do this, where the leaving certificate and intermediate boys from the country places who are at school, shall we say, in the provincial town, have to go home four or five miles, can visit the library before doing so and can work out their own projects, history or whatever it is, from the books that are in the library. And, of course, there will be many more of them, or should be many more of them, indeed. There will be many more of them than there would be in the local school library. We're linking it up in that way. Now, you've said that this development has occurred in the last few years and, in fact, that the increase, that the very the very substantial uh, increase in turnover, if I can call it that, um, has been marked in the last few years. Isn't it curious and rather ironic that this has happened to coincide with the years of television in Ireland? It is curious, and it has caused a great deal of controversy. Uh, the thing about television is, it is a fact, that the number of books being issued from libraries is on the increase, and is continuing to increase, if you like, despite television. Uh, I put it another way. It is, uh, to a large extent, because of television. For example, uh, my own sp uh, personal point of view is that the reader will say of the Wild West, much prefers to see the villain being plugged with a six-shooter uh, six, uh, on the screen than to read about it. In other words, television will provide all the, that pap literature form uh, illustrators on the screen. But the, coming into the library then, the people become a bit more selective. After a gardening program, after a travel picture, after uh, uh, an on the land series on television about building a piggery or whatever it might be, uh, planting some uh, new vegetable or the like, in they come to the library. Have you a book on this, that, or the other? So that really the, the reading is becoming more selective. And it's perfectly true that the, that the television has helped this not alone in Ireland. I know it for other countries, but I see it, in fact, in Ireland myself. Yes, helped quantitatively and also qualitatively. qualitatively. Yes. Now, you've mentioned the growth of interest in um, what we used to call non-fiction. Do you remember a time when the word fiction itself was regarded as a slightly inferior thing to non-fiction? I do. And the ghost of it is still there amongst older people, amongst my own gener in my own generation, I must say. Uh, but that is almost entirely disappeared. That is to say, the uh, effective protest of people who held that uh, is no longer listened to with the, the respect or the awe or the fear that it was in days gone by. Uh, people come in for, for every sort of thing. I mean, I've had young people coming in to me for, uh, for Ulysses. And um, having dis discussed their requests with them, I find that, uh, in most cases, I find that they are really interested in it. And I will give it out to them. But I find then that the teachers themselves are encouraging them to read that, uh, take that marvellous book, which I believe only an adolescent can really understand, uh, The Catcher in the Rye. I find an awful lot, an awful lot of uh, young people, uh, anything from 15 up, who read this and adore it and who don't see in it any particle of the objection that was raised to it in the 1940s when it was banned by adults. This has completely changed and uh, the, the, the young people have a wide open attitude and I'm glad to say that the teachers are encouraging in, the, in this attitude. Um, apart from... Uh books that are, as they used to say, only fiction, are books about Ireland, books in Irish, books deriving from, the, from Irish life. Is there any development of interest in these? Oh, indeed there is. Um, I would like to say that, really, there never has been an interest in the public at large in this subject until the last few years. People are beginning to wake up, this is reflected in other walks of life, beginning to wake up that this country has... There's something interesting about it. And it is not what they were taught in school in my day. It is something broader than that. And another thing that has helped it considerably is not just the libraries, but this uh, rise of uh, paperbacks on Irish history, cheap things. I think immediately of the books on James Connolly, for instance. I find young people reading this and able to buy them too. 
Just how brisk the paperback trade is can be gauged from a couple of figures which Richard Moss of the Dublin Paperback Centre quoted to me. When the first general paperback catalogue was issued in about 1960, it contained 5,000 titles. Uh, This year's edition of the same catalogue contains about 37,000. On the shelves of the paperback centre alone, there are some 9,500. And what is also remarkable is that Of the 37,000 titles we mentioned a moment ago, only about 10,000 are popular fiction. Egghead paperbacks, as they're sometimes called, cover a wide range. It would cover everything from, we'll say, uh, editions of the classics, right down through economics, um, books of literary appreciation, down to books of say, teach yourself how to type. Uh, The majority of books I still are, uh, of all kinds, are, I imagine, still produced in hardback first. Yes, um, it's it's true to say that the the vast majority of new books are first and foremostly produced um, in hardback. Um, The main reason for this is that libraries obviously must stock these um, as standard works. The trend as far as fiction is concerned is slightly different. Um, There is a movement now towards the original um, paperback. Quite a number of books are now appearing uh, first and foremost in in paperback, sometimes with a simultaneous hardback edition mainly aimed at libraries. And uh, of those that are published in hardback, how many, would you say, find their way into paperback sooner or later? What proportion about it would you... Uh, that's a very difficult question, but I think probably maybe approaching a half. Mm. Now, in the more uh, the what are the more familiar paperback areas, uh, you know, fiction ranging from thrillers to uh, serious-ish novels and, and quite serious novels... Um, have there been? Have you noticed yourself many trends in, in in the buying and selling of these? Do you find that there is a demand, say, for the uh, the better novel, or is the is the the hard core of the business still, you know, thrillers and things? Uh, no, I, I think that um, it's, it's true to say that uh, there is a very strong demand for the better type of, of book. Uh, the pattern of um, buying and selling of, of paperbacks is that most publishers will produce a new list of titles once each month. Uh, generally they do set a particular date on which they're going to produce their new list. Some will say the last Thursday of each month, others will say the first Monday. Um, generally these publishers will produce a list of maybe uh, ten new fiction titles. Um, we find, we try to stock most of these, but we find that after two months, three months maybe, we can forget about a good three quarters of those books. And in point of fact, the publisher will also forget about them. He will let them go out of print. But generally there will be uh, one or two books which have proved themselves to be of uh, rather better quality, rather more lasting. And um, these we, we uh, tend to keep in stock. And certainly it's, it's very noticeable that... There are authors who are of sufficient standard to be always in demand. And just on a rough shot answer, uh, what would you say the greatest demand, you know, that you get the greatest volume of questioning of inquiries about here, say, from a Dublin public? Um, I think that Dublin public are still very um, keen to support their, their own authors, we um, certainly have had numerous inquiries for books by um, such people as Patrick Boyle and Lee Dunn and McGahan. Um These are all very good sellers indeed here in, in Ireland. Um, recently, too, the secondary schools have embarked on, I think, a somewhat enlightened um, plan of giving the children a list of recommended authors very representative, not only um, our own Irish authors, but English and modern American authors as well. And we do have tremendous interest in, in this. 
How about foreign languages? Foreign languages um, there is, is still rather restricted, I'm afraid. The reading tends to um, only be done of books that are recommended in, say, adult education courses and a few selected authors. But this, uh, this I'm ta thinking of now is in, in, um, in foreign language, in translation, uh, there is uh, quite a, a lot of interest. And um, two beefs, finally. Um, one, uh, the price of paperbacks. You know, when Penguin first launched paperbacks in this part of the world, uh, you know, sixpence, a shilling, one and six, whatever it was, as it gradually mounted, uh, was still, you know, so much cheaper uh, than hard um, cover book. Now, I know that uh, the... Uh, that paperbacks are still very, very considerably cheaper, but they still seem to be getting rather dearer. Do you think that they have leaped forward rather too much? Yes, I would. I would certainly agree with that. I am particularly, I think, in the last three years. Um, unfortunately, now we, we are getting to the stage where a fairly long novel, let's say of, of 500 pages, maybe 800 pages, is costing sometimes 10 shillings, sometimes 15 shillings. Well, this, I'm afraid, is getting to the upper limits of, of paperbacks. And I think that things will now begin to level out. The reason for this was the competition between the, um, the paperback publishers who were having to pay astronomical sums to some of the more established authors in order to, to get the rights for these paperbacks. I think that things may now get somewhat better. They, they realise that they reached saturation point. Good. I'm glad to hear that. The final beef, the second beef, and my final question is, you know, this thing about the lurid cover. You know, I really did regret it when Penguins uh, stopped uh, publishing their greens, say, just as plain green covers. Now, this may be a little austere on my part, but I will say this much, that uh, when it comes to... Uh, light or serious fiction. I think that the cover, the, the, the come-hither cover, you know, which may bear no relation whatever to the, to the content of the, of the novel, I, I would give a completely false impression of, of the novel itself, that this thing is quite wrong. Yes, yes, I, I, would, I would agree with you there too. Um, it is, again, I'm afraid, a, a fairly recent tendency. I think the reason behind this is the fact that um, quite a lot of paperbacks are now sold in uh, non-traditional outlets, shall we say, um, supermarkets, um, railway platforms, and so forth. And they, to, in order to compete with their fellows, perhaps they're, they're, they're displayed amongst um, 20 or 30 other paperbacks on, on a wire rack, they have got to have a rather lurid jacket or a rather brightly coloured jacket and perhaps a somewhat false uh, description. Uh, I don't know how one gets away from this, I'm afraid. It's, it, it does certainly seem to be the, the trend. Um, some firms are worse than others in this. Uh. And mind you, Irish paperback publishers are pretty guiltless in this regard. By the way, the fact that there is now a thriving paperback publishing industry in this country is something that would have seemed a crazy vision not so very long ago. Paddy Hughes of Mercier Press attributes it to the radical change of attitude which he says has come about among Irish people in the last few years, both about paperbacks and about things Irish. He recalls that the first paperback his firm issued was a collection of Irish folk tales, and its success came as a great and welcome surprise. The very first printing of, of this paperback was a modest one from our point of view, was 3,000. But within the first 12 months, the 3,000 had gone, and we had reprinted again. But this time we had reprinted 5,000, and these sold again within 12 months. And this gave us an indication that there was beginning a new interest in things about Ireland and in our, in our own backgrounds. I think this is very important that all of a sudden it seemed to us that the Irish people, and particularly the younger Irish people, seemed to be interested in, the, in where they came from. And if you even look at our list, you will see this trend there 
that most of the books, most of the paperbacks we have published, deal with the background to the Irish people, even if they are folklore, even if they are tales or legends, they still belong to our past and to a past of which I suppose in some way we are still very proud. Well, this is very interesting indeed, uh, and it seems to show that uh, <coughs> what I suppose economists would call an irrational factor has cut across what might have been the prophecies of solid economic thinking in publishing at the time. Oh, certainly, because as far as I think, as far as most people were concerned, particularly those who had grown up during the 1930s, when Irish publishers found it next to impossible to sell a book about Ireland. We then, we very quickly discovered that in the late 1950s, it became very easy, relatively easy, to sell books about Ireland, books by Irish authors, and as, as I said to you, books about Ireland's past. Funnily enough, and this is another strange thing, having started with a book, uh, with a collection of folk material, we then moved into publishing some of the fiction that had first appeared in the 1930s and this was not a terribly successful venture but you know the, the, the titles went but didn't move with the same rapidity as, as the more factual material. And what moves most rapidly now? Oh the, the, certainly the books, ballad books are, are those that move, move most rapidly at the present time. There's a, this is not, I would say, because solely because of the Irish market. After all, uh, you, you have to remember one, I suppose, basic fact about our own publishing economy, and that is that 86% of the books we publish go overseas. Now, we publish, as you know, apart from the Irish paperbacks, we publish paperbacks on religion and also hard-backed books on both Ireland and on religion. But so on the overall, 86% of our books go overseas. Now... This would not be true, of course, of the books about Ireland. But the ballad books, books, uh, but the ballad books certainly, these it is, will be true of those because Irish ballads are of interest in Australia, in New Zealand, South Africa, even in places places like Malta and Gibraltar. Some good things have been said about Irish printing. You tend to mm. perhaps get a good deal printed out of Ireland. We do for a, a number of reasons. One of the major reasons that we, we print outside is that we discovered a printer who can, who first of all specialises in the production of paperbacks, and this is a very big thing. Uh, he is not printing for us alone, he is printing for paperback publishers in many parts of the world. His entire factory is geared to the production of paperbacks and he can therefore provide a specialist service which is, is would be difficult to equal in this country. Do you believe that the future of book production lies very largely in the paperback field? I'm afraid so, yes. The, the, that Nowadays people are used to having paperbacks. They are relatively cheap and one can afford to pick up a book which one doesn't necessarily want to read at the moment but feels that one should have. Th this is the important thing, I think, about paperbacks, that, that they're within the reach of everyone's pocket. And therefore you will tend to buy something, not because you want to read it tonight or tomorrow morning, but that you're you can put it aside without having spent too much money on it. Well, now, you have been yourself in mm. publishing for a very long time. A very long time. Uh, and in this, over this period, uh, do you think that you've mentioned one kind of change that has happened, people being more interested, more consciously interested in our past, in the rock we were hewn out mm. of and all that, but do you find in general that that things are better in the world of books in Ireland? Oh, there is no doubt whatever about that. The, there are more, more people are buying books. I think this is reflection of the fact that, that there are many more bookshops in Ireland than there were before the war, that the bookshops have certainly much greater turnovers than they had before the war, and this is not entirely due to the fact that books are more expensive nowadays. There is no doubt, however, that more people are buying more books, and we believe that this trend will continue, despite all those who felt that once television came to Ireland, that we would stop reading. Alan Hanna, whose family have been in the bookselling business for a long time, agrees. Does he find that the demand is mostly for fiction? Uh, I would say so today. Yes, it is. 
This is where we are selling this mostly to librarians. Of course, that is to the public libraries all over the country and to the city libraries. It is mostly fiction. Now, um, you are one of a firm of one of a number of Dublin firms who have been in this sort of business since God knows when. Would your grandfather or great-grandfather, were they in the business, by the way? Indeed, yes, my grandfather, he started it. Well, would he recognise the sort of thing you're doing today? I don't really think so. There has been a great boom in university and school book selling, not that we're really talking about that here this evening, but I don't think he would recognise our trade today. What sort of changes? What sort of changes? Well, number one, I'm glad to say the volume of books that has been sold. He certainly, I don't believe, could have anticipated there would be this boom in book selling in, in Ireland. And I think the way the more people get educated, actually they're reading more, there's fantastic amounts being spent on education, we hope, and the more that they are educated, the more they're going to read. Um, as well as that, even though there's a greater demand, would you say that the book selling trade has had to become more aggressive? that has had to go and push more or is there more competition is there you know there is possibly in one's mind a vague idea of a bookseller as an extremely gentle sort of person I'm sure you are all very gentle sort of people thank you but that you know sitting there vaguely in a in an atmosphere of books leather bound volumes and so forth and just waiting for us to come along no no I think that day is gone We've had to keep pace with trade, like in every other trade. We can't just sit down anymore. The competition, I'm sorry to say, is very, very great in book selling in Dublin. And either we keep pace with it and go out and chase the customer to a certain extent, he's not going to come along to us anymore. Nevertheless, the bookseller has to be different in some way from the man who's selling butter or selling um, ironmongery. He has to be something else, hasn't he, to the customer? Well, now, this was a point you mentioned, my grandfather. Possibly in his day and age, the bookseller was. The bookselling trade was much more unique than it is today. But now I think books are becoming just more a merchandise, and you've got to approach and sell them as such. This, I'm afraid, is all too true, as uh, quite often the book buyer sees when he's being sold a book, as if he were just being sold pound of prepackaged butter. But surely book selling is more than this. What the bookseller has to do goes far beyond this. After all, one can't just walk into book selling overnight from another trade. No, Sean, I must tell you one incident that happened to me. I think I was in book selling about six years at the time. And now this is true. And I was trying to explain something to my father, telling him I was trying to show to him how much I knew about bookselling and how little he did know at the time. And he, had, he has been in bookselling, well, goodness knows. I, I, I think he'd find me if I told you how many years he has been in bookselling. But uh, it ended up, uh, he turned around and he said to me, Listen, son, you know as much about bookselling as my big toe. Well, that was after five or six years of trying to sell books. Well, now I've been in it a much longer time, and it is a trade unique in this way that you can't go to a university to get a degree in bookselling. There are schools for booksellers now in London and various other, <coughs> other provincial, or provincial towns in England today. It does take quite some time to be what we term a bookseller. If the customer does come in to say, somebody's just been in the shop even for two years and ask, could you recommend a book on some particular subject or even new fiction, a new novel, he will still come along and ask somebody who's been there. It does take a long time to become a bookseller, let's put it like that, John. Now, do you find yourself that uh, people do expect this, or from the public point of view, do people know what they want more uh, than they used to? And uh, let me say this, Sean, that the Irish person is one of the most difficult people to sell a book to. A few days ago, a lady came in and asked for a book, showed her the book, the price, ten and sixpence. Oh, my goodness. As I pointed out, madam, I said it would only pay for 40 cigarettes today. But it's a different thing completely. They're not educated to buy books. They are certainly becoming more so all along. Do they know more nowadays what they want? Oh, I think so, yes. The Irish public is certainly becoming much more discerning in its purchasing.
And how about the very young purchasers? I asked Marion O'Marnon of Hodges Figgis, are children discriminating? Not so much in the type of book, but in the production. A child, you'll even see it move its hand across a page to feel the texture of paper. They like good paper, they'll uh, respond to good print and to a colourful jacket. And here, a certain number of publishers are aware of this. Many more have to uh, come up to standard. But at the moment, a number are putting great effort into colourful jackets of high standard, you know, good, good art, good um, drawings, and they have used top artists in this field, and it works. It's said that everybody has been a child, but everybody forgets what it's like to be a child. Do you think this applies in the case of books that adults are the worst people to decide? Uh, yes, because they, they remember what they liked, and they try to force this taste on the child and their memory doesn't quite go back far enough to the year they read it, and they're inclined to force a book that they liked at ten on a child of five. I find this very noticeably in grandparents. Oh, I read that. I must buy this. I'm sure he'll love this. And uh, sometimes you feel very sorry for the little child who's going to get this book. <laughs> you know, uh, some adults, again, I think, who perhaps will be quite unashamedly middle-brow or even low-brow in their tastes, uh, feel quite high-brow about what their children should read. And, uh, you know, how do you feel about this in general? I think it's an awful pity that they don't um, be honest with themselves because a child must go through all the stages they went through, irrespective of your background. They still go through a fairy tale onto an adventure, a school story, and then on to the myths and legends. But some parents are inclined to force the myths on them much too early in life, instead of leaving them with the fairy tale and the fantasy, and leaving them with the, the legends for later on. But uh, surely in all these areas, even in school stories, adventure stories, whatever you call, whatever it is, surely there are good and bad. There are well-written, decently written stories within all of these areas and ones that are sheer churning it out, you know. How can you help discrimination here? Well, once again, uh, the buyer of, the, of a book must, re must read the uh, various writers and remember the names of those who have a high standard of uh, vocabulary and literature within their books. And um, on the other hand, there is many a writer, for instance, Enid Blyton, whom many parents feel is not of a high standard, but children really love Enid Blyton, and it's a stage the majority of them go through, and it's over very quickly if parents will have patience. I suppose the important thing is to go through a phase but not to get stuck in it. Yes, this is where the parent or the teacher um, must be ready with a book of another standard, or indeed um, this, the um, assistant in a bookshop who has been watching a child reading these books, say they've read three, quite suddenly present them with a book of a higher standard. They, they will accept it and they won't go back. They, children progress and they, they like blotting paper when it comes to absorbing standards, I think. Do you think that Irish children have a sense of being Irish in their book buying and their reading? Do you think that we're doing enough to, uh, not to erect a paper wall, mm. but to help them to discover Ireland? Well, much as we'd like to help them to discover Ireland, the uh, field open to us is very limited. And children are not conscious of their heritage in reading when it comes to books, because the books are not there for them. The field is not wide enough, the field is not attractive enough, and they have to resort to or return or be presented with the book published in England with an English background. And I suppose that's even truer still about uh, books in Irish. Oh, well, that, that, that <coughs> field is a completely neglected field, I would feel. There's, 
I mean, the percentage of books, you, of attractive books you can offer a child in Irish is, uh, well, it's embarrassing. That's the only word to use. But do you think that Irish publishing for children, whether in Irish or in English, has a future? I think it has a very wide and open and, and um, fruitful future. Up to the present, we have Mrs. De Valera, Patricia Lynch, Eilish Dillon, Porrick Cullum, Walter Mackin, and now Breathe Man is coming to the fore with a lovely new book. And these are all writers that children love and enjoy. It's a very small field if you put it against the English, the English, um, publisher, English um, writers. But in both in Irish and English, we're not paying enough attention to what is needed for children, to what children want. Not what we want, but what children want. Marion O'Murnine, like uh, Michael Gill, has referred to the Cinderella status of books in Irish. Yet, as I remarked to Limo Reagan, chairman of an club Lauer, uh, these are the only books served in this country by book clubs. Yes, uh, there are. there is the... Book Club, Club Lar has been in existence for quite a long time now, and it exists to promote the distribution of Irish books. There's a second club also, the Book Club for Young Readers, and our most enterprising publishing firm, Sarshland Dill, has also a club of its own for people who are interested in books of that particular firm. The other two f- book clubs, of course, draw on Sarshidl and Dill's lists also. Well, now, do you think that this clubbery uh, in regard to Irish language publications is a sign of weakness or of strength? Oh, I think very definitely it's a sign of weakness. The reasons why the clubs exist is that there is really no channel for selling Irish books on a commercial basis. The club was started originally because... At that time, there was, in effect, only one publisher, the Goom, which did quite a lot in the way of publishing, but had really no sales organisation. It was difficult to know what books were coming out. It was quite difficult to get them through the ordinary shops. It was necessary to go into the shops, order them specially, and all the rest of it. I was living in down the country myself prior to the formation of the club, and I had a good deal of experience of that, of the difficulties of getting hold of an Irish book, and wanted it fairly quickly. So it was decided by a number of people that the best thing to do was to get the various people who were interested in Irish and who were sufficiently interested to buy books to form a club, and it was formed on a very simple basis. The club each year would select four or five titles from those being published each year and distribute them. Now, the number of titles being distributed through the club has increased fairly considerably since then, but the idea is still the same, that without some sort of an organisation of this kind, the market for Irish books is not sufficiently large to enable publishers to deal with them on the ordinary commercial basis. I think the same thing would be true, of course, if books in English in Ireland were dependent solely on the amount that's published here or on the amount of capital and all the rest of that's available for their distribution. It is easier to sell a book in English in Ireland because of the very big book trade that has been built up as a result of the existence of the very powerful publishing and distributing firms that exist in England and America. Well, how many copies of a book selected by an club lower uh, will find a home at the moment? It's rather difficult to say if a book is selected by the book club for its A-list, that's the list of German publications uh, newly issued, the a minimum of 500 is guaranteed, guaranteed to the publishers, but in fact a considerable num- higher number than that will be sold. It varies a great deal with the popularity of the book. The numbers in the club vary depending on our energy in canvassing people during the year from around uh, 1,500 to about 2,500 in an exceptionally good year. And a book that was very popular would sell anything from 15 to 1,500 to 2,000 copies. Now, 
Last year, for instance, we published the, or distributed more correctly, the first volume of the biography of the President, Mr. De Valera, and that, of course, was quite popular, and the sales ran somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000. Most of the other books on the list would have been somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 of the more popular ones, and those less popular ran between the 500 and 1,000 mark. But would it be true to say that in recent years, people have been buying not out of either duty or even out of a general enthusiasm, but because they wanted the specific book? I think that is so. It's always very difficult to know why people buy books. After all, there are public libraries and all the rest of it available. But people buy books from a variety of motives. I've no doubt that a lot of people buy Irish books as they buy English books out of a sense of duty or a either to the language or to the author. I have bought English books myself because I happen to know the authors. It doesn't always follow that I have read them right through to the end, and I'm sure the same thing is happening in Irish. But I think there's a very genuine interest in Irish writing as such. I think one finds that, at least we find it, by looking at the kind of books that are picked out, and certainly those that are most popular on our lists are those that, I think, anyone would knowledge of modern Irish writing would regard as those by the authors who have established themselves. A book by Martin O'Kine gets sold very well by our standards. There's a very definite interest in it. One hears people talking about the book and all the rest of it. The same thing goes for uh, books. But, uh, last year, for instance, Martin O'Kine's Book of Poems well, it was quite high Marching on the list. Uh, we found that a book by Mora, again, a writer long time established, but who has a certain gift for describing a very pleasant, romantic type of life in Donegal, sold very well. And I think that's it's certainly our impression that books are selected pretty much on merits, that is to say, on the opinion people have formed of the writers from their previous work. Where does this leave the young man doing his first book? I think, uh, as in every other society, it leaves him on a rather hard road. It's quite true that unless readers know about him, members of the club, for instance, know about him, they're not very likely to select his book unless he's been lucky enough to get some sort of advanced publicity. That, I think, of course, is one of the great difficulties about writing in Irish. There is very little critical writing. There's very little reviewing. There's very little of the publicity, gossip, and all the rest of it that goes on, say, in English or French or any other language. The opinion has been expressed that uh, there's a great lack of attractive books for youngsters. I think that is true. It's, again, a feature of the same sort of difficulties that one comes up against in adult publishing. There is a shortage of mm, children's writers in every language when hears that complaint made. Uh, naturally enough, where you have a fairly limited number to draw from as an Irish, the shortage is even greater. There is, however, a club for young readers, and that has succeeded year after year in distributing half a dozen titles or so to uh, secondary school and the older classes in the primary schools. Uh, it has succeeded in distributing quite a number of some thousands each year uh, to them. It's a very difficult job to do well. It requires that books in Irish should be somewhere at least of the same standard of production, plenty of pictures and all the rest of it, as you find in English and French books and so forth. It's very difficult to do that in Irish, where you have a small market and where the cost is so disproportionate to the number of copies you're likely to sell. So it comes back to a question of money? Oh, very much so. The great weakness in Irish writing is the undercapitalization of our publishers. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 